Welcome to, to the Boardroom Alpha podcast. Today, we're you know, delighted to, to be here with Nicolo Damasi of DMY Technology. Uh, Nicolo, first, you know, thanks, for, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Great pleasure to be here. Uh, you've had quite the busy you know, year and a half or two years here, you know, pricing four SPACs, you know, two of which have been completed, um, which are huge successes in Rush Street Interactive and, and Genius Sports, and you know, two that are on the way. Um, you know, with IonQ and, and, and Planet Labs. Uh, you might be the most under the radar uh, SPAC superstar out there. So, so first, congratulations um, on all the success that, that DMY has had. Um, so just to kick things off here, you know, DMY has now become, you know, one of the premier SPAC sponsors out there. Um, what, what do you guys from DMY bring to the table um, that maybe some other SPAC sponsors don't, don't have? Yeah. We're actually number one on the league table right now. If you look at if you look at post close performance, uh, so uh, not one of the premier, not the premier, premier, the premier, the premier. Show, right? Um, and at the end of the day, you know, um, our approach has been very fundamental uh, throughout and from the get go, right? So my partner Harry, you and I have done twenty public companies as either CEO, CFO, or you know, audit chair or comp committee chair. Um, my partner, Harry, has done $400 billion market cap companies. I mean, he's on the board of Coupang. Uh, he's, he's on the board of, um, well, he, he was the CFO of Accenture. He was the CFO of OEMC, same with um, uh, Adele. Um, and, uh, you know, he's also, uh, uh, he's also still uh, looking at, you know, uh, opportunities on a global basis that like Coupang that can be, um, you know, trillion dollar companies. I think from, my perspective, I've done more entrepreneurial public companies that are, you know, sub $10 billion market cap. And so I feel like we bring this great blend of uh, ultimately uh, what you do to build a long-term shareholder base and for a company that can be tens of billions, hundreds of billions, but also knowing what it's like to be in the trenches when you're still an emerging public company. Um, the reality is, I think there are some people out there who have never run a public company Um our, our recovering uh, bankers, lawyers, private equity guys, venture capital guys, whatever you want to say. Um, and believe it or not, it's not the same. Yeah. <laughs> Being in the CEO or CFO chair is a completely different sport uh, and game than it is when you are uh, consulting, advising, whatever you want to call it. Um, and it's a different skill set. And so, um, you know, Harry and I treat every one of our deals like an IPO, and we think long and hard about how we can set the business up for success. Um, if you look at what makes us number one in the league tables, it's actually the fact that we have upgraded numbers continually. Um, so our first and second transaction have upgraded numbers, you know, to a dramatic extent. Uh, I think I think RSI's pipe, uh, you know, was marketed, you know, last year um, at a kind of $320 million revenue forecast for 2021. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we're only two earnings calls into this year and the guidance is at 480 now. Um, you know, our second deal, Genius, was marketed, uh, I think, $190 million, uh, you know, last year for 2021 numbers. We're only two, two earnings calls in and it's pushing 260. Um, and the third deal, INQ, uh, quite remarkably, uh, has just tripled 2021 guidance this morning, uh, believe it or not, September 9th, um, like a 200% increase. Um, and we haven't reached the first earnings call and we're only, you know, nine months into the year here. Um, so I, I think, you know, treating these transactions as they should be from both a re- regulatory diligence and underwriting perspective as IPOs gets all the right behaviors and the right ecosystem behavior. 
um, doing other things uh, and competing in bake-offs for who can name the highest valuation uh, is probably not the way to go. Uh, and you're seeing a fair amount of indigestion in this ecosystem over people who have treated a SPAC IPO like a sell-side transaction, uh, as opposed to an alternative mechanism for an IPO. Um, yeah, you bring up an interesting point, and, and I like how you said we're, we're treating these as true IPOs and not you know, mergers, as you know they're technically called in, in terms of the legality of things. How, how can you talk about you know, some companies out there? You mentioned you know Rush Street, Genius, and IonQ are all outperforming guidance measures. Can you talk about the the, the state of the market where you see SPAC sponsors, targets, and, and some of these deals get very overly aggressive? Um, you know, with what they're projecting. And I was at, you know, it, just a mechanism they're using to help sell their deal or is it the lack of public company experience where you need to, you know, be able to meet or exceed your expectations um, at, in lieu of getting, you know, crushed by public shareholders? Yeah. So look, DMY is, is long-term greedy with an emphasis on long-term. Um, you know, Harry and I, I like have, been, have been public company leaders for, at least two decades each, right? So, you know, uh, my partner Harry is a little more experienced than I am. He was he was uh, working at Solomon Brothers during the, uh, the 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 great the great Monday crash or whatever it was, 1987. I was not, but nevertheless, um, I've been a public company CEO uh, as long as he's been a public company CEO or CFO. Um, and the reality is, together we've got you know over 40 years and hundreds of quarterly earnings calls. 200 M&A deals we've led as a public company leader, 20 public companies we've run, dozens of secondaries uh, or IPOs that we've done. And so, um, you know, the, the long arc of history is really important here. Um, I think, you know, when, when you care about your reputation with institutions who are at the end of the day, the arbiters of what happens here, um, you, you need to make the right decisions, not for yourself or a company, but for pension funds, Fidelity, T. Rowe, Wellington, capital, these sorts of people. Um, and they remember. <laughs> so, you know, so, so they remember how Harry and I have performed as public company leaders. They remember how we performed, you know, SPAC in, SPAC out. Um, you know, I think there are certainly people that have gotten caught up with alternative behaviors. Um, and there's probably been some alternative, not long-term greedy, but short-term greedy behavior. There's also been just outright inexperience. Okay. Um, and I blame, openly blame, underwriting banks and investment banks in general for, you know, opening up new practices where they treat SPAC IPOs like sell side engagements. Mm. That has been, I say, deeply unhelpful to the ecosystem. Um, I think they have also um, egged on sponsors who should not underwrite or try to price an IPO because they don't know what they're doing. And that's a not so good combination, right? Having on the one side, um, you know, professional services firms egging on inexperienced sponsors to give it a go. On the other hand, um, banks treating a SPAC IPO like it's a sell side engagement. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that is, that is not a recipe for a healthy ecosystem, right? Um, the last thing I'd say in this one is not enough people who are SPAC sponsors have 40 years of public company experience and have made their livings in the public markets and intend to continue making their livings in the public markets. Right. Okay. Yeah. There's a lot of people that don't check, any of those boxes or check few of them. And if you don't check the box of 20, 40 years of reputation and caring about the next 20 years, um, you know, you tend to do things that are short-sighted, like not beating guidance. <laughs> and I, I have been, I can't tell, I gotta tell you this, nothing has dismayed me more single-handedly 
than the SPAC sponsors out there who have done deals where they have lowered numbers, not just on the first earnings call or the first year, they've lowered numbers on the way to the vote, which is almost unbelievable, right? Almost unbelievable. And there's a couple out there, and I am angry about this because it hurts the entire ecosystem. They do this single-handedly, just like we help the whole ecosystem and we bring credibility by beating, they do the opposite. And people remember and lawsuits will happen for the SPAC sponsors who have lowered numbers mm-hmm. twice in some cases on, on the way to a vote, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of hard to believe, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and it's hard to make this stuff up in some right. cases, right? right. Uh, people lowering numbers, you know, an hour or two after, you know, votes have happened or closed or whatever. We got to report, yeah, it's, it's almost like, um, you know, under promise, not that you're under promising when you're selling a deal, but the under promise over deliver mindset, it's kind of shocking um they're so blatant about it um you know, they're going to be sued and they yeah. deserve it right and, and, it's and, as simple as that like you deserve and, it and you know i'll sign on to the lawsuit as well <laughs> it's like it just does so much harm right to the ecosystem to regulatory scrutiny to underwriting to the to the good actors who are on on the league table right. strong post-performance close you know it, it makes everybody wonder what we're what we're doing here uh, yeah, it, it adds to the to the negative sentiment um around the space where it's almost more of an a, a, an event if if you see a de-spac or that is rate that is raising guidance because so many so many are lowering lower, lowering rather um let's talk a little bit about you know companies being ready to you know transition from you know, the private markets to, to the public markets which which you've obviously had a lot of experience doing and maybe some of the differences between, you know, maybe a company like Genius who had, you know, called post-revenue versus a company like IonQ, which is more of a, you know, a pre-revenue company. What what are some of the dynamics there you can talk about? Yeah. Um, well, listen, we we only work with companies that are going to become real revenue companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see that in all of our transactions. Um, you know, Planet Labs is our fourth one. To put in perspective what a commanding leadership position Planet has, you know they have nine figures of revenue. You know this is this is a two hundred million dollar revenue business. You know in their next fiscal year, I think uh, their January year ends, whatever January twenty three. Um, they have two hundred satellites that in low Earth orbit that capture the entire Earth daily. Their competitors have like twenty million of revenue <laughs> and like two satellites or five, and so. You know, if you want to talk about sucking all of the oxygen out of a space, I don't know any technology market where a player that has a you know five-year, six-year lead in terms of getting eyes in the sky, software, hardware, stack machine learning, go to market. I mean, they will eviscerate everyone, right? Just because they didn't hit the public markets first doesn't mean they're not the, the best business in this case. Um, INQ is a business um, that we would have taken public were not able to be confident in guiding towards revenue mm-hmm. this year. And not only guided to that, but obviously it has it has crushed those numbers and shown that it can deliver a year early. Right. So they're delivering revenue, you know, we thought wouldn't happen, you know, we guided to not happen until next year. It's happening this year. I think that speaks volumes of their technical roadmap. It speaks volumes of the fact that the era of quantum computing is here today. And it speaks volumes of our approach, bringing a complicated transaction that would not have happened, uh, I think, without Harry and Niccolo's back sponsors and, and a pipe of strategic investors who are also in some cases customers. So whether or not it is uh, Silver Lake or you know or Michael Dell's family office or Bill Gates's Breakthrough Energy Ventures, there's a whole host of strategic partners who are also you know looking to work with INQ. 
uh, you know, Samsung's a cost is, is a is a shareholder. Lockheed Martin's a shareholder, um, and so is I think Airbus. Um, and so the list kind of goes on on that one. Um, and it was actually the largest pipe we raised to date was on INQ. The most oversubscribed pipe uh, actually was INQ as well. Um, it's the world's first public quantum computing company. There is an enormous strategic premium when you can be the first in your category um, because it gives you, of course, consolidation power as well. Um, you know, RSI and Genius, um, RSI was driven out of Neil Bloom's family office. And I think it's safe to say that they were thinking they would stay private for longer and probably raise private capital before we started working with them. Um, you know, Neil Bloom's obviously a successful businessman on, on all metrics. Has He's done a public you know, REIT, I think before, um, but not recently. Um, and, you know, Genius was private equity owned by Apex. Mm-hmm. Um, so Apex has a lot of corporate governance, even if it's not quite public company governance. Um, I think that, you know, for, for RSI and INQ, more so than planning Genius, um, you know, Harry and I rolled our sleeves up and, and helped them fill uh, roles, whether or not it's things like CFO, um, head of HR, you know, et cetera, um, head of legal, you know, some of those needed to be filled in. Um, and we've been uh, associatedly conservative in financial forecasts to make sure that we have the time to do what we need to do to be a successful public company, not just on announcement, but on the first earnings call, the second earnings call, right. et cetera, et cetera. Right. Which brings me to another question I forgot to ask earlier. And, and you guys clearly have are taking board seats on, on the companies you're, you're taking public via, via SPAC. How important do you think that dynamic is to stick around on the company's board, advise the company's leadership versus some SPAC sponsors that you see deal transaction, you know, see you later? Yeah, in general, you know, in general, the sort of one and done, wham, bam, thank you, man, whatever you want to call it, is, is probably not sort of the, the tremendous level of alignment that, you know, might want. Um, I will make one caveat, which is the state of California uniquely is driving, you know, quotas, <laughs> which don't always make it easy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think you will see, you know, some instances where board observer seats are happening, right. advisor seats are happening, but full board seats may not be possible mm-hmm. in some situations where they're particularly late stage and, you know, you, you've got, rules you got to hit in short order. But in general, yeah, we're on the board of our first, you know, the first two that have closed will be on the board of INQ and it closes both Harry and myself. I, you know, I often chair comp committees, Harry often chairs the audit committee, or at least we serve on these. Um, there's no doubt that you spend a lot of time with these companies when you're in the trenches, right? Yeah. So, you know, I think when I think about my relationships with the, the board, the management team of these companies, you know, we see them frequently during the week. We have worked hard on them getting ready. We worked hard on them, you know, during the transaction, the, you know, the post-transaction marketing announcements. And uh, I think the reality is, um, you know, you build a lot of rapport that enables you to influence whether or not it's a board seat or board observer seat, if you can build influence and drive your playbook, um, you will get, you know, quality outcomes. And at the end of the day, what I sort of underscore here for Boardroom Alpha is, the flight to quality is going to accelerate from here. Um, so I'm expecting, you know, in, in tough markets, no matter what the market is, and I obviously was a pioneer on Apple's App Store uh, in one of my prior public companies, um, you know, the reality is in a world of choice and confusion, uh, brand, brand and track record comes to the fore. It's mm-hmm. one of the reasons why 
the Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley's have franchises, regardless of who comes and, and goes, is that it sort of stood the test of time. And, you know, we aim to do the same thing with, with DMY technology. Um, and I expect in a world where there are more SPACs floating around now than there were a year ago, the reality is people will look at that league table and go, well, are you on the league table or you're not? That's probably not a good sign. And then it'll kind of come down to like, where are you on the league table? Because at the end of the day, I'm not in this for the 2% returns, nor are most of my shareholders of, of some of the placeholder capital IPOs that have happened. You know, mm-hmm. We're really focused on building high quality long-term shareholder base that people are in this for the you know, chunky double-digit returns that we've been able to generate. Right. With finishing to my next question in terms of you know, really the, the future of the SPAC market, it seems, it seems today with you know, the oversaturation um, and, and more and more negative headlines th- than positive that even for high quality SPAC sponsors, uh, it's been really hard to generate, um, you know, above NAV returns, so to speak, prior to DSPAC. You know, what do you think, if anything, can help, you know, bring that market back to equilibrium and, you know, maybe some pre-deal SPACs are trading more on, on the future company's fundamentals rather than just, you know, a race to 10 until, until post spac Yeah. So there is a supply and demand imbalance that has led to even quality situations, getting people having to recycle capital because they have their own risk issues. So, you know, not, a, not every fund in, in, in the IPO market is levered, mm-hmm. but there are, there are guys and gals running around that are three, five, even seven times levered going like, Oh, you know, Oh goodness. Right. Like you, you down, you go down 1% on that situation and like, you got to make it up somewhere. Right. And so that has not helped some of what's going on here. Right. Where all of a sudden, you know, you don't have a, a God given right to trade to 15 mm-hmm. without beating numbers and, and, and winning and pricing properly. You know, all of a sudden your God given right is nine ninety nine. You know, you got to do work to get to 10 and beyond. And if you don't do work and you recycle capital, it doesn't help things. Um, I will say this with a plea to the entire ecosystem, and you're welcome to quote me on this far and wide. Please don't overprice and overgoose your numbers so that you miss them. Mm-hmm. Not just on the way to the vote, but anytime thereafter, because it hurts you, it hurts investors, it hurts underwriters, it hurts the ecosystem, and it calls into question you know, whether sponsors are doing their diligence and doing a good job, and frankly, doing what they're supposed to be doing and their role. Um, what will fix the SPAC ecosystem? is uh, an, an ability to trust transaction forecasts and trust transaction pipe forecasts in particular, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we have beaten our numbers by enormous margins. I mean, I mean some 50%, mm-hmm. right? The first two are almost 50%. The third one's 200%, right? <laughs> and our stocks are not triple, right? right? Yeah. So it's been a lot of hard work to be up 50%, up 100% up, et cetera, on some really big beats, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, the reason why we're not up more, and we should be, is there's other people doing the opposite and people are having to recycle to cover losses on frankly, very poor transactions and forecasts and pricings with our profits, right? Mm-hmm. People are taking profits from us to recycle them to stay in the game. Um, and so, you know, I think, you know, the, the virtual circle will start to go in the right direction if people take their jobs you know, more seriously and, and think hard about what it's like to be long-term greedy rather than short-term greedy. Right. right. Don't take every nickel off the table on valuation. Don't take every nickel off the table on the forecast because 
stuff, believe it or not, in life doesn't always go flawlessly. Right. I'll, I'm gonna. I'll, we'll use that the Damasi credo. Um, don't inflate your numbers. <laughs> uh, so, lastly, just uh, what what's next for the for the DMY SPAC franchise? What can we expect uh, out of you guys in the future? Well, we're focused, obviously, first and foremost, on on getting people to understand the tremendous power and achievement that is that is INQ as the world's first public quantum computing company and their their upgrade. Once that closes uh, end of this month, uh, September, we will we will move on to the same process for Planet Labs, which is our force back. And we expect that to close by the end of the year, uh, November, December, et cetera. Um, you know, we we think long and hard when there are, you know, there's sort of a bit of a market indigestion going on right now about what we should do about, you know, DMY five and six. Um, you know, I think the reality is uh, that is still a, a work in progress because, on, you know, part of me goes, I'm just going to wait 18 months till every all, all these, you know, first time sponsors don't know what they're doing, you know, expire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they will expire, you know, they, is, it, will be, it will be messy and it will be yeah. ugly and bloody, but they will, they will become zombies and they will have vast redemptions and, you know, they'll be stuck in limbo land. Um, right. On the other hand, you know, there is a, believe it or not, in the flight to quality, there are a lot of long-term supporters of us who want to see us come back and do another one. Um, you know, I think we have to think hard about, um, terms and size of that. And we also want to bias our, our marketing efforts at all times from IPO through pipe and beyond towards the more fundamental investors. Um, and so, you know, that flight to quality will go for us with investors, as well as of course, for potential partner companies. And I call them partner companies, not targets, because it is a SPAC IPO partnership. It's not an M&A process. Um, and uh, I think, you know, spending more time with our fundamental supporters and understanding what they want to see us do is probably what we're going to be doing, you know, in the coming weeks and months. Great. Glad to hear it. Well, Nicolo, thanks so much for, for taking the time with us today. Really appreciate it. Uh, excited to see what's what's coming down the line for, for DMY in the future here. My pleasure. Before seeing you again soon.